Thank you, musicians. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Lord, we pray that as we remember Good Friday and the work of Christ, that you would make it real to us. That it would not be like a story, would not be as so many shows we see on TV or books that we read, but that we would see it for the history and the reality that it is. We pray that through your spirit, by your word, that you would make it alive to us, that we might think of it rightly and respond to it as we should. Do that work in our hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Nearly everyone in this room tonight has heard the story of Jesus' crucifixion. Most of us have considered his suffering before. On Thursday evening, you remember when he was in the upper room, he washed his disciples' feet after they fought over who was the greatest. He gave the monumental upper room discourse. He prayed his high priestly prayer and then went to Gethsemane where he sweat great drops of blood as he prayed three times in agony. Probably around midnight, he was seized in the garden by a multitude of Roman soldiers sent to arrest him. And then he healed Malchus's ear after Peter had taken a sword out and cut it off. He was bound. He was walked over a mile to the house of Annas where he was questioned, struck, and then still bound, taken another half mile to the house of Caiaphas where he was falsely accused, spat on, slapped, blindfolded, and beaten. This is probably around one in the morning. I don't know how you feel, but I know we start to turn into pumpkins around 10 or 11 at night. But around one o'clock, he is taken to Caiaphas's house then he is taken to the chamber of the Sanhedrin. And by the end of that trial, it took them so long to fall, find two people to falsely accuse him that it was approaching first light on Friday morning. Then he was subjected to further questioning by the elders and chief priests and then taken almost another mile to the praetorium where Pilate, then judged him and found him innocent. And though innocent, he was sent back a half mile to Herod Antipas, where he was mocked and dressed in a fine robe, then taken another half mile back to the praetorium, where Pilate again declared him innocent. But because of the Jews' insistence, Pilate had a crown of thorns pressed into his head, and he received repeated beatings in the face. 
he was finally condemned to death by Pilate, at which point he was taken into the custody of the soldiers, brutally scourged, spat upon, beaten in the head with a staff, and bowed before in mock worship. That finished probably around nine o'clock in the morning. We've considered the agony that he has gone through. From there, he was forced to carry the traverse beam on which he would be crucified. But even though that journey was probably less than a quarter of a mile, he couldn't make it because he was so exhausted. So Simon of Cyrene carried the beam for him. And when they came to Golgotha at nine in the morning, the crucifixion began. And we think of Christ's suffering as only on the cross. But isn't it true that though that was his greatest suffering, it was made that much worse by what he had gone through? And to imagine, to picture how tired and exhausted he was, remember what before any of this happened, Remember what the disciples did? He said, wait here for a little while while I go and pray. And what did they do? They fell asleep. Probably we should be slow to judge them. Because after the week that they had gone through of being in the middle of Jerusalem, surrounded by this activity, event after event after event for the whole week, they were exhausted. And then he prayed again, and he came back, and again they were asleep. And he went and prayed again, and he came back, and they were asleep. That tells us how exhausted they were. And yet Jesus never slept. He went through an agonizing night, and then came to the cross. For roughly six hours, he hung on that cross. He endured mocking, abuse, ridicule, all the while experiencing the agony of the Roman crucifixion. It's more than we can fathom simply to hear the details of his agony in such a way. We can't imagine it. And though it may be hard to believe, the physical suffering which Christ endured is nothing compared to the agony of the spiritual suffering he endured by his Father's own hand. In fact, as we think of Gethsemane in his prayer, Father, let this cup pass if it's possible. It was probably not the physical suffering that he was frightened of. There was one thing on his mind, and it was his Father's judgment. How do I know that this spiritual suffering was greater? Well, think about this. The physical and emotional suffering of Christ was administered by men. When the Sanhedrin got together, when the high priest gave his judgment, they were the ones who said, give him a beating. That was the wrath of Israel's leaders. And when he was taken to Pilate and scourged, and beaten, and crucified, whose wrath was that? The Romans. 
And they did the best that they could to make him suffer. But it is written, Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. And on the cross, Christ became a curse for us. And that curse can only be administered by God. Now, it's not possible that the wrath of man, namely the crucifixion by the Romans, could compete with the wrath of God. Who is more able to pour out wrath, to judge, to punish, and to cause suffering? There is no comparison. The wrath that he experienced from his father far outweighs the wrath of the physical crucifixion. So the physical agonies I described are the peak of physical suffering. A man can't bear anything more than that. But behind Christ's visible suffering, there lies an invisible counterpoint of incomprehensible spiritual agony. Have you ever asked, why? Why? Why did Christ die? It's not a mystery that Christ knew from the very beginning that he would suffer such a death. He knew that he would be persecuted by the elders, that he would be killed. In fact, he said in such clear tones what was going to happen, Peter took him aside and tried to correct him. You can't be right. I now get what you're saying. You can't be right. You're wrong. He knew it. He knew the heart of his enemies from the very beginning. He knew that they hated him. They, that he knew that they were seeking to destroy him. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew of his betrayal. He knew of the false accusations. He knew of the corrupt testimonies that would come out. He knew of the unrighteous judgment that would be given. He knew the pain, the abuse, and the separation from his father. Why? Why would he endure this? Why would he endure the cross? Before I give you my answer, I want to acknowledge the truth of the answer I think most of you have in your mind. I think most of us would say, why did Christ die? Why did he suffer? I think most of us would say, to save sinners. Hallelujah, what a Savior, we sang it. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Why did He die? To save those who believe in Him. So that if you, even now, would be reconciled to God, if you would be cleansed of your evil heart, if you would have your guilty soul saved from the wrath of hell, turn to Christ. Yield to Him. 
put your hope and your trust in him and be forgiven. That's why Christ died. That's why Christ endured the cross. Amen? Amen. That is a glorious truth, one that all Christians hold dearly. But I think that answers the question, what was it that Jesus accomplished on the cross? What did he do on the cross? He provided salvation for sinners. But that's not necessarily the same thing as what was Jesus' motivation for enduring the cross? Why was he willing to do it? Let me illustrate the difference. Why does a farmer spray pesticide on his land? The immediate answer, to kill weeds. Duh. So is the farmer primarily motivated by the eradication of weeds? No. He does, in fact, accomplish the death of unwanted plants, but that's not his motivation. Why does the farmer spray his land? What's his motivation? I think we'd all agree to increase his harvest. Right? He kills weeds to increase his harvest. Or again, why does a basketball coach start practice with an hour of conditioning? The immediate answer? To get his players in the best shape they can be in. So is the coach fundamentally a physical trainer? Is that what he's after? No. He does, in fact, accomplish the goal of physical conditioning. But what's his real motivation? What's his fundamental motivation? It is to win championships. That's what he cares about. He gets his players in the best shape of their life to win championships, not the other way around. He does not win championships to get them in good shape. And the farmer does not increase his harvest to kill weeds. So back to our question, why did Christ endure the cross? To save sinners? Amen. Yes. But is there something perhaps more foundational than that? To find our answer, I want to read to you Roman, or, sorry, Hebrews chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there. This is a verse you all know. Probably many of you have it memorized. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you hear the answer to why he endured the cross? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Why did he endure the cross? For the joy that was set before him. And I want to propose to you that Jesus' foundational motivation for enduring the cross was the joy that would be his when the work of the cross was finished. He died for joy. Now, what joy are we talking about? Rather than enter into a complicated 
answer. Let's read the verse again. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Any guess what that joy is? The joy that was set before him was being seated at his Father's right hand. That was the joy that was set before him. Consider another familiar passage, Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not a stretch to say that this exaltation of Christ is the very same thing as being seated at the right hand of God. Or another familiar passage, Ephesians 1. According to the work of His great might that He worked in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head to the church, which is His body. Now, if Jesus had been seated at the right hand of the throne of God, above what does he sit? What has he been exalted over if he is at the Father's right hand? Absolutely everything. He has been exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And he's been exalted above every name that is named not only those in this age, but in the one to come. So that when the author of Hebrews says, Jesus endured the cross and is sit sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, we know that that seating necessitates his exaltation above everything else. Why did Jesus endure the cross? for the joy that was set before him. The joy of being seated at his Father's right hand. Now, all of these passages that I have read point back to one Old Testament passage. And Jeremy's probably been waiting for me to say it. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, if you're sitting on a throne, there's only two types of people in the world. Those who obey you and your enemies. Right? That's it. 
And if Christ is seated, seated at his father's throne, and the father says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, who is left that is not subjected to him? There is no one. There are those who obey and those who are his enemies. And what will the father do to his enemies? He will make those enemies a footstool for his feet so that he can rest his feet somewhere. Absolute sovereignty, authority, power. So what motivated the Lord Jesus to endure the cross and all its shame and suffering? It was the joy that was set before him. The joy of being exalted by his Father above all things and being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now let me finish by making application of this truth in our own lives. Hebrews 12, 3 and 4, the very next verses. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Consider, consider him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. There are times when you grow weary. There are times when I grow weary. There are times when we grow faint-hearted. In our struggle against sin, we think, I've done enough, that's it, I'm done. Every one of us approaches that precipice of weariness where we're tempted to stop. We're tempted to quit or throw the towel in. Now, it may not be that ultimate quitting of rejecting the faith or falling away, but it's real. It may be at the end of a long day when you know you should call that friend of yours that needs encouragement, but what you really want to do is watch some TV. You grow weary. You don't endure. You pick up the remote. Or it may be that early in the morning you know you should get up and read your Bible, but you really want to sleep or just get up and read the paper. You grow weary. You don't endure the pain and you push snooze. Or it may be quitting on that mean brother or sister or spouse or parent and saying, forget it! I'm done. It's not worth the pain. You grow weary. You don't endure. And you return evil for evil. Or it may be at lunchtime when you just want to eat your lunch in peace, but your irresponsible co-worker didn't do his job, and so you have to do it for him. You grow weary. You don't endure. You grumble and complain. Those are all temptations to grow weary where we say, it's too much. It's too much. I've already been a good guy today. I don't need to put up with this too. But whatever our particular circumstances, we're tempted, all of us, just to quit, to stop striving, to take the easy way out, to stop enduring the suffering. And when Satan whispers those lies into our ears, we don't cower nor do we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. What do we do? We consider Him 
who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. We look to the cross. We look to the endurance of Jesus. We're reminded of his suffering and agony and the glory that followed. And we say, I too would be raised up with Christ. I too would be seated at his right hand. The reward of God's pleasure is worth it. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I too will endure the suffering for the joy that is set before me. The joy of being with our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that before our eyes would be the Lord Jesus. That we would look to Jesus. That we would consider Him. And that as we do, we would see that He has blazed a trail for us to walk through. That He has shown us the way through suffering to glory. And as we see Him I pray that in our own hearts, we would be able to endure. That we would willingly walk through the suffering that you have allotted to us. That we might be conformed to his likeness. And that we might share in the joy that is his. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.